the simply beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand-in-hand to create a better life for all of us. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Filling in for Howard Lapidus, we have Felon O'Reilly, a man of convictions. (laughs) And Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. You know, it's, you probably often ask yourself, what's it like to be in prison? What's it like to be interviewed by a shrink? What's it like to be locked in a room with Ted Bundy? Well, we're going to answer all those questions and more today. I think being locked in a room with you about covers it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, you could just be locked in a room with a felon, and that's uh, close enough for government work. <laughs> Although, uh, felon, you haven't killed anybody, have you? Oh, well, can you guess you can't talk about that? Well, no statute of limitations. Exactly. Yeah. We had more than one guest say to say, is there a statute of limitations on murder? Maybe I shouldn't answer that. Uh, Al Carlisle uh, is a man who evaluated uh, Ted Bundy uh, for the Utah court by evaluating it only and they checked to see if he had insurance. Uh, Al, what, what does it mean when it says you were called in to evaluate Ted Bundy? At the time, I was a psychologist at Utah State Prison, and I was working with the 90-day unit. And uh, Ted Bundy was just starting to become known at that time. And um, so the court had found him guilty of attempted abduction of uh, Carol Durant and uh, had sent him out the 90-day program. And so we were to take a look at him and see if... It looked like he could go on probation or if he had to get a card number. Uh, put him under and, house uh, arrest. Pardon? Put him under house arrest. Yeah. <laughs> he, had the, he had the big house. Yeah. Uh, but I remember when um, he walked down the hall towards me and his uh, clothes were well pressed. He looked good. He was clean. Big smile on his face. And much like a politician, he held out his hand and he says, Hi, I'm Ted Bundy. You must be Dr. Al Carlisle. And that was probably the only time he ever called me Dr. Carlisle. After that, it was always Al. Well, he wanted to get that bond going with you so he could BS you even more. That's a a possibility because uh, he had had an MMPI prior to that. Now, what's that? Uh, multiple um, Minnesota multiple personality inventory. And what did and, what uh, they find in the inventory? Uh, he looked clean. You know, there was no real pathology shown. Boy, and, uh, they got to revise that test. Yeah, <laughs> but an interesting thing is Ted really didn't show any serious pathology insofar as psychosis. Mm-hmm or deep depression, or even a lot of anxiety. Well, is that is that because of the compartmentalization of, of uh, the psychopaths where when they're out, you know, chopping people up in little pieces or raping dead bodies and other hobbies, it's uh, they compartmentalize that for their other normal so-called aspects of their life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they develop two parts. I mean, there's there's the original part, but as they start getting into fantasy and get heavier and heavier and heavier, and they try to live it as completely and as intensely as possible, 
and then they get into the window peeking and going out at night and all of this stuff, they, they begin developing two sides of themselves. And, and they have to decide which one they like best. Yeah, they can shift in and out. So when he's doing his political things or when he's talking to friends and such, you, you see only the good side. And some of the girlfriends he had saw another side as well, and that was, that was in 70, 73, 74, 73, summer of 73, the pathological side. He used to bite him on the ass real hard, too. He did back at uh, the Calmega House in Florida, and that's how they, one of the ways they got him back there, because they, uh, <laughs> he left his teeth marks. Well, even back when he was in Seattle, one of his girlfriends came forward to the police and said, I think uh, I think the guy with the brown Volkswagen may be my boyfriend. Uh, you might want to check and see if the women were bit on the butt, because he does that to me a lot. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that'd be Liz, Liz uh, Kendall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and at one time he tried choking her, and he wanted to get into some, some things that she didn't want to get into. So she says, no, no, stop. We don't want to do this, so. Yeah, he backed off from that. He was rather reticent to talk about what he was accused of, but he had no trouble talking about others. Yes. He didn't admit anything to me about having killed anyone. In fact, until he got um, right up to the very end in Florida, he was saying he wasn't guilty of anything. But, you know, there was an interesting thing that as we were doing the evaluation, I got to a, uh, a certain part, and we'd finished for the day, and we were standing out in the hallway. <coughs> and he says, Al, he says, do you think I'm a multiple personality disorder? And I, my, my first thought was, that's strange, you know, because uh, we're doing the evaluation for the court. We haven't even talked about that. And I said, uh, Ted, do you think you are? And he says, no, no, of course, I don't believe in that. But then when he got back in the prison in uh, Florida and was evaluated by Dorothy Lewis, a psychiatrist, he talked about these two parts of himself and said he believed he was not a true multiple personality disorder, but it was almost like he was because he felt controlled by this entity as he called it this other part of him and he would walk down the street carrying on conversations with it that reminds me of the book uh, rather the movie uh, mr brooks with uh, kevin costner where he uh, is carrying on conversations the whole, the whole time with his imaginary friend <laughs> saying oh yeah. come on you know you want to kill people come on going to a 12-step <laughs> meeting ain't gonna help you <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's easier to get away with that these days with a Bluetooth in your ear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know it used to be you'd see people babbling away and you figure they're nuts. Now you figure they got the little thing in there and they go, oh, it's okay. <laughs> that's, why, that's why every schizophrenic and paranoid person got, goes out and buys a Bluetooth. Yep. So, yeah, I'm uh, not the, talking to myself. i got a Bluetooth. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, let me plug the book real quick so people know what we're talking about. The Development of the Violent Mind, The Case of Ted Bundy. I'm Not Guilty is the name of the book. Uh, it's a novel based on actual interviews with Ted Bundy by our guest Al Carlisle, Ph.D., who had the great rare pleasure of spending lots of time with uh, good old Ted. 
uh, almost as much time as Ann Rule did <laughs> working at the crisis oh. clinic. And uh, uh, he has put together a fascinating book that's based on his conversations with Bundy and Bundy's conversations with, with others. Now, did you sense that Bundy was, as we say, professionally abyssal mashuga or... <laughs> A bissel? A bissel? Just a little bit. Nuts? No, he was full-fledged nuts. Yeah, he was was fascinating because when, when when he was suspected of possibly being the Ted they were looking for up north, and he was down Salt Lake at the time, and uh, then he was arrested. I mean, Jerry Thompson just really kept after him. Mm -hmm. Detective did an excellent job of uh, of catching. But um, when the word got up to up up north that Ted Bunny had been arrested, you know, uh, the people were shocked. A lot of his friends, campaign workers and such, said, no, he couldn't have done that. Ted isn't like that. It's absolutely impossible. These people down there in Salt Lake have really... uh, They've gone off the deep end, you know. They just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it because in in many ways he was friendly. He was for the poor. He worked well in campaigns. He got along with people. And those who... Played well with others. Yeah, and those who knew him under those circumstances said this guy... It's 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 absolutely impossible that he could be a killer. Well, they said the same thing about Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer, married, five kids, Desert Storm veteran, hardworking guy. Yeah. Uh, last guy you'd ever suspect. Yeah. Serial killers don't look like serial killers. That's the real problem. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, if they walked <clears throat> around drooling and fangs <laughs> hanging out and... That would be me. (laughs) (laughs) And dragging their arms on the ground. Yeah. You know, maybe we could say that that guy's a serial killer, but... Now, Bundy came up with this thing that I thought was complete BS about the uh, influence of uh, violent porn on his life, which I thought was crap. Well, what's your take on that? Okay. Um, When he spoke with Dobson... And uh, he said that, you know, porn was a piece of it, but he made it sound like porn was the cause. And porn was not the cause. It was just a piece. uh, You know, I worked in the uh, prison for about 20 years and talked to uh, various sex offenders and so forth, other serial killers. And porn was not a cause of it, but as they got into it, porn was brought in to just add a piece of what they were doing. Well, you know, the the, uh, the porn experts uh, say there's two types of porn. Male porn, which is a fantasy fulfilled of sex without the possibility of rejection. Women in porn films never say no. They're always very eager. Porn for yeah. women is Sidney Sheldon, a business success without hitting a glass ceiling. <laughs> Working girl? No, no, in other words, that you know, well, what's the fantasy? Well, what would it be the ideal? And the ideal for a guy is not having to worry about rejection, and the ideal for the woman is not having to worry about uh, not being able to be successful because of their gender. Yeah. And with uh, someone like Bundy and other serial killers I've talked to, 
when they when they're young they fantasize and they get deeply into it because it works in allowing them to escape their loneliness but they're hero types of fantasies as they get into their teen years they begin to fantasize even more they fantasize about the dating as they become sexually aroused they fantasize about that and then as they begin getting rejected because a lot of them are spending too much time with the porn and with the fantasy especially the fantasy they're not developing social skills so they start getting turned down by women and then they get angry and then they get start getting control fantasies and these can turn in then to revenge fantasies makes sense to me i felt that way <laughs> Doc, this is Felton O'Reilly, by the way, who's a uh, spend more time in prison than you did. <laughs> I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten to the serial killing yet. But, uh, but is there any? Uh, does anybody really know how old he was when he first started killing? It looks like when it was in the summer. Um, the summer Memorial Day, I believe, of uh, 69, when he went back to um, Philadelphia the second time, you know, and he would spend quite a bit of time in New York on 42nd Street, all the girly shows, but uh, uh, he told me he was bringing a car back, but uh, he met two girls on the beach, on Jersey Beach, and um, he later told an interviewer psychologist when he was in prison that these were the first two victims. And Richard Larson, who wrote the first book on Bundy and who was associate editor of the Seattle Times, he wrote an article on it. So it looks like in the summer of 69. How, was, how old was he, was he then? He was a fairly young fellow. Let's see, he was born in 45. So 25? Yeah, so he's yeah, still pretty young. And of course, as uh, Brent Turvey says, they tried it, they <clears throat> liked it, they did it again. Yeah, what happens is... Now, Ted, one of the things Ted wanted to do is to get closer and closer and closer to the real act, not the act of killing but the act of, of rape. And so he tried it before, and we're not sure exactly why. It may have been when he was going to Temple University. But uh, to be able to actually do it because his fantasies were not enough. And so he wanted to try the real thing, and I think that's what he did on New Jersey Beach. And he got those two girls, and his, his, um, his motivation... I think was just to rape them, but then, you know, he's he's raped one or both of them, and what can he do now? Yeah, you can't exactly so, let him go talk about it. Exactly, and one <laughs> of the fascinating things you see with some of these guys is when they do then kill their first victim, there's a sense of peace. There's a sense of everything's been taken off their shoulders. What a relief! I just murdered two people. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Well, but I think it's I, I think it's true with with any crime. Uh, you know, if that's like 
like like robbing a bank. I think you do feel a peace afterwards because it's it's the obsession that drives you to do it. And when you finally do commit it, it that obsession is gone for a little while. And yeah. so you do feel a peace from it. Yeah. So I assume I it would be the same uh, with, with any uh, illegal act. Yes, I think so. And I, I think before before the uh, crime you're talking about, there's a fight within themselves. And they want to, but they don't. They want to, but they don't. And the tension builds up. And finally, when they do, there's a sense of peace. It's almost like an orgasm. Yeah, kind of like, yeah. yeah. Sort of like, okay, I've done it. I'm sorry I've done it, but... I'm not going to do that again. Till next yeah. week. <laughs> but but then the obsession again, starts again. Sure felt good. Especially if you know you can get away with it. If you've gotten away with it once, you know, then it's it's impossible to fight. Then it just keeps coming back. It's just like a drink, for Christ's sakes. You know? Yes, yes. And, and in the fall of 69, when he met Liz, Liz Kendall in the Sandpiper, and was on... Uh, Halloween, and uh, they both got drunk and went home to her place. And he didn't let, he didn't have sex with her that night. It was her and her daughter, and he was real good. and And she fell in love with him, and he was her phantom prince. And that's an excellent book in understanding her view of Ted Bundy. But it's like she she rescued him. You know, well, any time you get rescued, you wind up presenting the rescuer. <laughs> exactly, and that's, that's a little bit of what happened, partly because she developed a drinking problem, partly because she pressured him to get married and even got a marriage certificate and then uh, ripped it up, got mad at her and ripped it up. Um, but uh, she really, really wanted him and stuck with him, and she felt that he... He, he wanted a, a family type of a life, and they would uh, come from the Seattle area down to Utah and meet with their parents, and he fit right in. He had conversations with the father, and he would help uh, Liz's mother out in the kitchen, and they thought, boy, this guy's real nice. you know. So part of him, I think, wanted that, but on the other hand, Ted really wanted a politician's wife. And his first girlfriend, Marjorie, she had that, but then she's the one that turned him down, you know, and, and Liz stuck with him, but she didn't have that. That's why I asked then, him. Yeah, yeah then, then when they had the Governor Evans uh, campaign, and Ted worked in that and did a very good job on that, and after the first year in January, they had a, the uh, celebration ball. Ted was hobnobbing with all of the co-workers and everyone else there, and Liz went off and got drunk. You know? that, that, that didn't impress him. Our producer has a question for you. He, he mentioned the sandpiper a minute ago, and I stepped away, yeah. and I don't know if he uh, answered the question that never came, which was, is the sandpiper in uh, in the Northwest? Is that what he's talking about? The hotel? Yeah, the sand, sandpiper is sort of like a tavern where the students would go. 
But where? University what town? Washington. University of Washington, Seattle. Oh, it is University. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It wins nothing. Another bet lost by our producer. You <laughs> 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 know, uh, you know, we read a lot. We have a lot of people talk about serial killers on the show. We haven't had any serial killers on the show, but you're the between you and Felon. We're, <laughs> How do you know that? How do you know We're that? pretty close. Uh, Taylor, we're going to take a 60-second break. Uh, Dr. Carlisle, we'll be right back. Okay? Stay with us. Yep. This is manager to the star, Howard Lapidus. And if you own an iPhone or an Android or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam. And you can take Outlaw Radio everywhere you go. Grab the iPhone and Android Outlaw Radio application. The smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that follows you now follows it. Your iPhone and Android is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. That's right. The demons of decadence changed the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And it's now available for free at the iTunes and Android application store. And remember... When you're looking at an Android or an iPhone, remember, I invented the app. <laughs> I am the legendary Burl Bear Race. I'm like born to rock and roll, rock in the cradle of rhythm and blues. I write true crime, but guess what, kids? I got a brand new book that isn't true crime. It's a science fiction, ooh, futuristic thriller called Fear the Sky. Stealth Fear of the Sky. We have a drone with a mind of its own, raiding death and destruction from the sky. Is it possible to stop it? Hell yes, otherwise there wouldn't be a story. So I'll tell you what, it's available for your Kindle right now. Just type in Fear the Sky, Burl, B-U-R-L. It'll bring it up. It's under five bucks, a dandy bargain. While you're at it, buy my, tri- uh, my blah, 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 true crime books, such as, of course, Body Count, Headshot, Mom Zed Kill. Kids still didn't get the dirt bike. And see me on Investigation Discoveries, Deadly Sins. The show is called Mommy's Little Killers. So... That's the story. Spend all your money on my books. And now, back to our show. We're coming back. We're coming back. You know, when it comes to serial killers, they tried it, they liked it, they did it again. Once you have that fantasy, and that fantasy becomes a reality, Dr. Al Carlisle, Ph.D., author of I'm Not Guilty, The Development of the Violent Mind, Case of Ted Bundy, is it true, as I've heard said, that once they bump somebody off, once they live this fantasy, it's like having a play on Broadway. They just keep wanting to redo the same play, just recasting a new actress in the lead role. That's, that's very true. Unless, if the person has other options, if other things work for him, if uh, Ted, for example... Had of found the uh, uh, girlfriend that he wanted, who could be a politician's wife, and he had he had a steady job that remained a stage steady. Uh, there's a possibility, but the problem was Ted did not want to live with Liz. He had his own apartment, so he'd spend much of his time over her place. And a lot of the stuff in Ted's apartment was stolen, including about an eight-foot Benjamin tree, which he just walked out of uh, 
Walmart with the <laughs> That don't make him a bad guy. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, everybody does that at some time in their life. Yeah. But, Doc, don't you think that the... That it's every every criminal, every convict has this fantasy that that he's going to lead a normal life and find the right woman, the so-called right woman, and uh, and give up all the fantasy bullshit and and become normal. Don't you think that's all part of it? That's I mean, seventy-five percent of guys when they get out of prison, the first thing they do is get married. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that is a big part of it, but. Uh in Ted's case, Doctor, what if we had to find a woman who would be a politician's wife, live in a separate house, and like to pretend to get raped? Yeah. They're out uh, there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I had one look up at me and say, hurt me. A real man would know how to hurt me. So I told her she didn't know how to accessorize. <laughs> That's a true story, by the way. She was not amused. <laughs> you know, in Ted's case, there was a very, uh, something very interesting that happened. In the summer, in the summer of 83, 73, sorry, summer of 73, Ted was working. Um, he was showing some peculiar behaviors, though, but uh, he was telling Liz that they'd get married. And he still had contact with Marjorie. And the contact went on, off and on, over the years, up to that point. And Marjorie was just a friend, you know, but they remained friends. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he took a trip down to the San Francisco area and uh, met with Marjorie, and things seemed to go pretty well mm. with them. And then she came up in the early fall, and they talked, and things seemed to go real well. So they decided they were going to get together for the Christmas holidays in 73. And Liz and her daughter had gone down to Salt Lake for Christmas. And Marjorie had gone up and spent time with Ted. And uh, things seemed to be working out. And New Year's Eve, Ted proposed to her for marriage. Mm. And she accepted. Ooh. You know, so it, it, it's like he was still trying to find this this politician's wife. It, but uh, so on New Year's Day, she flew back to the San Francisco area, supposedly believing that she they were going to get married. She'd go back and tell her parents and her friends and start preparing for the wedding and all of that. Ted told me that he couldn't get back to Liz fast enough and he he was aggravated with Marjorie he said that she was she'd fly off the handle and get mad at him for little things such as he locked his keys in the car or he didn't pick up something in the grocery store he's supposed to get you know so he decided that he really couldn't handle Marjorie and Liz was not right for him. So he's screwed. <laughs> and so, it was, yeah, it was just a few days later, he killed his, well, attacked his first victim, and then he went into a killing spree after that. 
Well, you know, in your book, you have uh, Bundy saying about this Marjorie chick, she was the basket I put all my marbles into. She was the link to my career. She validated my career. It was as if my career goals and Marjorie were pieces of a puzzle locked together in a tight fit. And when you pull those pieces apart, the picture is totally destroyed. When a person is as lonely as I was, and this person finds a, a partner who accepts him as Marjorie seemed to do with me, it validates every dream he has about his future. And then when they break I mean, he put so much power into this woman, into this relationship. It's like he's, he's almost setting himself up. Exactly. And that's when he went to Stanford University for the summer in Asian studies, and he liked it. He liked the atmosphere. He liked the weather. He liked the professors. He said it was just wonderful. But then she started pulling away from him. And he told me, he said, his goal in life was to have a beautiful co-ed and an occupation, you know. And he, he, he wanted to get into politics. And it makes sense. Psychopaths do well in politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they really can. And then when she called it off and said she wasn't ready to get married, he just <laughs> fell apart. He, he didn't finish his classes, summer classes there, Stanford. He went back up to the University of Washington. He tried to get into a career there. It didn't work. He, he just couldn't. He, he, it was though he had a nervous breakdown, and he couldn't handle it. He, he put all of his marbles in one basket, and the bottom fell out, and he couldn't pull it together again. Now, let me go back to your book here, which I recommend everyone get immediately. It's absolutely fascinating. It's called The Development of the Violent Mind, The Case of Ted Bundy. I'm Not Guilty is the big title of it. It says, when, it, when he's bumping this woman off, he says, I can't recall the moment I decided to strike. I can't remember actually doing so, but I picked up a tire iron, which I had between the seats, and I hit her in the head, knocking her out. Then he pulls off the dirt road, etc. And he says, no, I didn't rape her. A person has to be conscious to be raped. She was still unconscious. I made love to her. Then I held her close to me for the longest time. It was as if the two of us were having a very personal, intimate experience. He's just bashing the head with a tire iron. Can, can I interject? Yes, please. <coughs> Isn't it eggs in one basket, not marbles? <laughs> yes. What the hell is wrong with this guy? That's why he's a psychopath. He doesn't know the difference between eggs and marbles. I think this man yeah. is a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Uh, he was <laughs> yeah. at one point. You're right. It's marbles. Marbles in one basket. Yeah, marbles in a basket. He was a few yeah. marbles short of a basket. But, I mean, this fascinates me that he hits this woman there with a tire iron. She's unconscious. says, no, I didn't rape her. I made love to her. And then he holds her close for the longest time. He says, I didn't know her name, yet I felt I loved her deeply. Yes. This I think that's part of, part of his fantasizing. I had another guy who was also a multiple killer. And when he would take a victim into his downstairs place and strap her down, he, he was in the fantasy at the time. And he was carrying it out. It's as though he got his from the book. And as though he was reliving it and feeling it and had the attachment with the victim, the same that was in the book. And it was after. I've had a few of them tell me, once once the victim is killed, then everything changes. Then they're back in reality, 
And the objective at that point is now how do I get rid of the body? But some of these guys, I don't know if Bunny did or not, but Robert Lee Yates would make love to the dead body after he killed the woman. Would even come back sometimes later, you know, like a few days later and, you know, go for seconds. I mean, that's yeah. a little peculiar. <laughs> that is. I, 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 you know, I think that reflects the degree of pathology and how sick they have become. And it's fascinating that they can be that sick at that point and then the next day go to work and people can't tell there's anything different about them. Well, as I've often said, if I didn't have a dual life, I'd have no life at all. <laughs> yeah, but just don't have the Bundy one. Yeah, but you know, Felon seems to identify with this. Well, I think, I think, Doc, that that part of it, you know, the whole the whole political atmosphere that he hung out in, and at some point early on, I think that just becomes good cover for for the fantasy and you start building towards that yes and and i'm not sure that you're you're 100 percent aware of it when you begin doing it yeah i agree i agree uh, <clears throat> yes I, I think when the person is doing the political thing there's a couple things as you say that's happening one of them is people see me in this and they would never believe that i'm doing the other Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, you know, I had one guy who said uh, he, he would he was working with mentally retarded, and he would take him into this ballpark, and he would march them all across, all the all the way down. He says just so people could see that I was doing something with these kids, and no one would believe that I was killing anyone. You know, and then I think there's another part of him that was thinking this is what I really do want. And I don't want to be killing because that's going to mess everything up. And I'll lose my career and I'll lose my friends and my family and my reputation and all of that. So you had. But I, even different. if he wasn't doing it, I mean, I'm willing to venture that a, uh, a serial killer, but, uh, like anyone else who's addicted to any sort of behavior, even if they're not doing it, they always know where they can get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, but I but I also think that that. That you obsess over it, but then once you're done, you wish that you you wish that you weren't that. You wish yep. that you weren't, uh, you know, a, a, a serial killer or a serial bank robber or a serial rapist. Um, yep. And I think, I think it's like I know I got a degree in criminal justice, and I was counseling juvenile offenders, and so that nobody would suspect that I was doing armed robberies. <laughs> but as as it sense. turned out, nobody was that's surprised I was doing that robberies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> no, no, not even the people you were counseling. They, they were more surprised I was counseling juveniles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it all depends on where you put your emphasis. Yep. But your emphasis. You know, emphasis, yeah. Bob uh, Keppel, there, there was a um, documentary where Bob Keppel goes back to the prison and Ted confesses his crimes and such. But one of the things, and I've seen this listed a couple of places, that after Ted had attacked someone and was driving down the road, he was crying and he was throwing the souvenirs he collected out 
you know. Mm-hmm. So you do have that part that after it's over, after the drive is gone, after he's been satiated, that part that says, good Lord, that was a stupid thing to do. You know, I want to stop. And they may try to stop, but the hunger's still there, the appetite's still there, the obsession, and it comes right back again. <clears throat> do you think he wanted to get caught? I do. Uh, that's been an interesting concept, not only for him, but for Wesley Dodd. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I worked with him and for Arthur Bishop, who killed five kids and others. There's a question of subconsciously, do they want to get caught? And they set themselves up to do it because they start getting pretty stupid. Well, Bundy seemed to because he said, what's the state I can go to where I'll get the death penalty? And he said, Florida. So he escapes, goes to Florida, bumps a couple people off. Then he makes it to the border, the state line, and he just drives back and forth along the state line until they get him. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's fascinating that uh, so much of the emotion comes from the amygdala. And... Uh, I was asking a neuroscientist recently, you know, have they decided or thought anything about where the subconscious is? And he said they're they're really thinking it might be an amygdala. Well, if you have that subconscious, so to speak, part, but the other conscious part that says, no, I don't want to get caught, but the subconscious part seems to set them up to do something stupid. On one hand, we can say, well, he's just getting too cocky and... Criminal pride, as they call it, yeah. Yeah, uh uh-huh. You know, so I think we still need some real good research on on that part. Did they ever do any brain scans or anything on Bundy, or did they have that stuff then? Not that I know of. Now, this raises the question, is that the United States is supposed to be against the law to execute people who are mentally uh, bonkers? That's the official term. Uh, so it would seem to me that these people are obviously bonkers. I mean, obviously dangerous, but where, where do you... Uh, this has some real strange implications for our justice system. Okay, and that's a fascinating question because on one hand, if you're talking about insanity, in insanity, the person is unaware that what he's doing is wrong. Yeah, but not the rule, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, there, was, there was a case of... Uh, a postman up in Idaho who walked in up towards the house, and the guy stepped out of the house and blew him away with a shotgun. And he honestly felt that that person was a communist and had come to kill him. Hmm, must and have been that was his, Yeah, that was his belief at the time. Because that's been happening all over the place. <laughs> he thought Burrow yeah. was coming over for a visit? Yeah. Wow. And so I... I yeah, it, it's really tricky as to whether or not this person knows what he's doing. But I think in most these serial killers, yeah, at the time, they know they're doing wrong. So that the insanity plea wouldn't work for them. Now, of course, it depends on what state you're in. Uh, they have that McNaught rule. I Probably in Washington, they have it here in excuse me, California, also in Texas. There's a few states that don't. In Texas, you had Andre Thomas, who was so nuts, he ate one eyeball in the courtroom. And then when they found him guilty, he ate the other eyeball. Uh... Justice is blind, and the, the judge said, you're obviously nuts, but you're not insane under the law. So they sent him to prison, yeah. of course. 
We had one here in uh, California, I don't know if you're aware of this, goes back several years, of a guy who, who, kind of like that... uh, that movie Frailty, <laughs> he gets this vision that uh, California is going to be destroyed by an earthquake, but thank God there are 10 people out there willing to give their lives to stop the earthquake. And your job is to go out there and they will psychically communicate with you, these 10 people, so you'll know which ones to kill, to sacrifice, to stop the earthquake. He goes out and, boy, I'll tell you, uh, very perceptive, within 45 minutes, he finds all 10 people and kills them. And then when they arrest, he goes, but we stopped the earthquake. Apparently, he didn't know that all they had to do was illegalize gay marriage, and that would stop the earthquakes. The only problem uh, is that in frailty, um, he was right. He was right, yes, I know. That's why I love that film. He was right. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's very difficult. Do you have any idea? We've asked several other experts the same question. We get different answers. How many serial killers do you think are out there walking around uh, in the United States at any given time? Well, personally, I don't know, but the FBI has estimated about 35, and I saw most more recent estimate about 60. So I'd guess around 35 to 60, but the ones we hear about, uh, it seems like there's less than that. Well, that's because they're getting away with it. There is one in Portland area. Uh, who's still free. The cops even brought him in and talked to him, and they, the guy is so good at what he does, he leaves no evidence, no DNA, no anything. And he even uh, kind of bragged that he was arrested for murder once in uh, Arkansas or something, and he got off, and uh, lots of luck guys, and they yep. still have never been able to pin anything on it. Yep. Even though they have, a, they know they know it's him, but they have no evidence. Yeah. They did catch him once, so he kidnapped a, a working girl off the street, and she's screaming for help out the window of the car to a cop car, and uh, he got off on that one because, after all, she was just a hooker who wanted to get out of the car. <laughs> That's why they pick on hookers, because it's so difficult, you know, to oh, yeah. easy prey. Yeah. Although Ted would grab just about anybody. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he picked those that seemed vulnerable. Doc, don't you think that that was all part of his... He needed the, that part of the scam, though. Instead of just physically grabbing somebody, he needed that part of the scam to get them close? Yes. Instead yes. of just hiring a hooker, yeah. Yeah. the whole thing was gaining somebody's trust. Yeah, yeah. like a con man. Yeah. Exactly. It's very similar to other criminals and other crimes. You know? Yeah. That's all part of the game. Yeah, and that's what he did with the cast on his arm. Mm-hmm. Right. And holding a bunch of books and say, I, I need to uh, put these in my car. Can you help me? He did that up in Bannerful, you know, with the Debbie Kent. Uh, right. Or help me with uh, Miss Ott, too, by helping with my sailboat at Lake Sammamish. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and that way he can get them away from everybody else. And, uh, and, and people do want to help people, and they're willing to do something like that. And he did look friendly, you know, mm-hmm. didn't look like a killer. Now, you talk about the compartmentalization of their lives. Ann Rule told me a great story, and I've told it on the air before, so my listeners will forgive me for telling it again for you. But she, t- Ann Rule, worked with him at the crisis clinic, and yeah. she took him out to a party. And it was a dance sort of thing, right? And she's trying to hook him up. And she says, Ted, no, she's telling you, Ted, look at that girl over there. 
ask her to dance. And Ted looks at this girl and he gets all freaked out and he starts drinking real heavy. And he goes, I can't get up the nerve to ask this girl to dance. He goes, come on, Ted, you can do it. And no, he got so drunk that uh, Ann had to take him home and put him to bed. She says, then later, you know, when things shake out, she realized that this girl that she was urging Ted to ask to dance looked exactly like all of his victims. <laughs> and the two worlds there were colliding. Yeah. Yeah, and the way Ted explained that type of phenomenon, he says most of the girls back in that time had their hair parted in the middle, combed down the sides, you know, and it was very popular. But uh, I, I talked to a couple girls he went with when he was in Salt Lake, and uh, he'd made love to this one, and I said, well, how was it? She says, uh... So-so. You know, <laughs> Except for the part where he strangled still, me. <laughs> yeah, he was still shy. He was still shy, and he just, he, he still really had a hard time approaching girls. I mean, he could be the politician, and as long as he's doing the political stuff and trying to convince them of something is one thing. But to take him on a date and sit down and feel comfortable and just being able to chat, it's almost like that was beyond him. Yeah, everyone said that they, you know, he'd go out on a date and he, he wouldn't even talk to him. He was too shy. Yeah. I, yeah. Don't, I don't know that that's all that uncommon, though, Doc. I think uh, a, a lot of guys get this, uh, this phobia or this uncomfortableness in their adolescence when it comes to women and, and never really outgrow it. Yeah, I, you're right. You're right. If they didn't feel like they were very much and someone that no one would like when they were a child and if that remains with them because it did Ted you know when he was in high school and he'd be on a um, standing there in the hallway talking to one of his friends and another guy would come up and speak to his friend and say hey do you want to do something tonight and the friend would say yeah sure and, and this other guy wouldn't even look at Ted Yeah. or, or when he went skiing and he was he was one of the boys skiing, and he had the admiration, respect. He taught himself how to ski, and I think he bought his skis from his um, lawn mowing thing he'd done. But uh, and then he'd come back from skiing, and uh, the other guys would go out and party that night, and Ted would go home all alone. You know, and this was senior in high school. You build up resentments. <laughs> yeah. I know I did. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, I mean, I could I would never would have been a serial killer, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, it's because he got all that blood and I'm really lousy cleaning up messes, as anyone who knows me knows. <laughs> I, I think, <laughs> honestly, having spent a good deal of time in prison, in a lot of different prisons, and spent about the same amount of time in 12-step programs, I've met more people in 12-step programs that fit the profile of serial killers than I have in prison. <laughs> you know, That's comforting. Of, yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I've met some guys who had it, had they had the right opportunity, they may have become serial killers because they had the same background that Bundy did. The same basic personality, 
And if Ted had not have killed those two girls on Jersey Beach, and he had to come back and found some woman he, he that, that would fit what he wanted in a wife, and he got into campaigning and it worked, I'm not sure he would ever become a serial killer. Yeah, but the things that she would have to fulfill for him to match the fantasy perfectly are almost impossible. The first time that she lost her temper with him, the first time she became aggravated or had a little PMS, it, the game's going to be over. Because it has to link up with that fantasy 100% or he's going to flip. Yes, and he was not one who could compromise. And in the evaluation I did, one of the things that uh, showed up was he felt women were superior to men. Oh, yes. And they know it. And that's yeah. why they had to die. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have that. We can't have that. <laughs> no, we should never give them the right to vote. There's the real problem. <laughs> Wait. But I think I think we all start out, you know, looking for the for that the quote right woman, yeah. You know, thinking that they're going to fix us, and and I think it's very similar to any addiction where you look for anything and everything, and you try anything and everything to not to not do that, to not continue that, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's we, interesting that as, as as you get older. You start out with a list that would fill a couple of toilet paper rolls, and by the time we get to this age, breathing and female is all that's left, and breathing is starting to Breathing labor. is optional. Yeah, yeah with Ted, breathing was, it was optional. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's Ted Bundy, you haven't said in the book, and I, I, I'm not sure how much of this is directly from your conversations with him or how much is reconstructed. said, so I felt a, uh, about guilt. When I felt guilt, and I did feel a lot of it in the beginning, I made the decision to keep doing what I was doing, and I gradually desensitized to the guilt. You can always find a reason why you're right and others are wrong. You could switch sides and argue the opposite and still convince yourself that you're right if you wanted to. I came to believe there are no truths, only expediency. My involvement in the political campaigns convinced me there's always two sides to an issue, and the party that wins the election is not the party that's the best one for the people, but the one that can win the debates through the most eloquent oratory. Yeah. Yeah, when he was young and would uh, isolate from the family, go up to his room, fantasize, and then as he began to develop that and he got into the sexual things, well, the sexual things would make him guilty, and he either had to get up, give up the fantasizing and the sexual things, or he had to give up his religious beliefs. Well, that's a simple choice. And the other didn't. (laughs) And in that way, he gradually became hardened and became the psychopath. Well, I think I think also there's that old adage that if you tell yourself the same lie long enough, you you believe it, and then, I mean, isn't exactly. that isn't that how Republicans are created? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll that'll, 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 that'll go over real big uh, with our producer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the whole justification process. Oh, absolutely! I, I mean, I could justify every crime I ever did, and you get a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, and to Ted, Ted, women were no different from anything else. And he said if, if people can shoot a trophy buck and put it on the wall and animals are alive and humans are alive 
And so it's, if, if you can do that to animals, it's no different doing it to a human. Well, that's pretty typical. Psychopaths carve a turkey, carve a person, no difference. Right. Exactly. Well, one, right. you know, one, the stuffing tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for Well, how do we know? <laughs> Ask Ted. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is really, really horrible. That, now, that, from my research, and I worked a lot with Dr. Robert Hare in my first book, and, and then, of course, you're a professional in this. There's two ways you can be a psychopath. One, you can be born that you're way. You're not talking about psychopaths. You're talking about PETA. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of psychopaths there, too. <laughs> Sociopaths. Sociopaths. Then you can be born that way. It's like missing the emotion chip. The example I use is my brother is colorblind. You can talk about red, blue, green, all you want. You can put him in support groups. It doesn't matter how much you talk to him. He still cannot conceptualize red because he can't see it. And... Uh, uh, and, and but if you want to make one, if you want to make someone a psychopath, give them a few head injuries and some physical or sexual abuse. You know, you can crank one out. Um, uh, is there a place where I can, we one can sign up for this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Is this is this kind of what you've come across? Well, of course, you've talked to a lot of these people, and they're they're full of crap. Well, I mean, can you tell when someone's BSing you? Because I mean, the felon has been. Being well, in prison, prison a lot. You talked to guys like Dr. Carlisle. I'm sure you BS'd him, didn't you? Well, of course. They're the enemy. <laughs> that's right. That's I mean, that's no right. no offense, Doc, but that's how we view you. You're an extension of the system, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's the system that's screwing us. Yeah. You know, because. Yeah, there's one thing, though, I can say. Uh, the guys seem to have enough trust that they would tell me of crimes that were not on their record. And crimes that I'd understood that they really did commit, but they knew that I wasn't going to tell the Board of Pardons or anything, get get him arrested. And a lot just seemed to want to unload. When I first went over to Max, when Arthur Gary Bishop had been found guilty, he was going to be executed, he says, I'm guilty, I want to be executed. But I want to know why I did what I did. And so you get some of these people that really want to understand. Yeah, and there's no way, because like I say, you could sit for a thousand years trying to understand your own thought process, but you're using your thought process to do it. It's like straining your eyeball, trying to see your eye. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't work. Uh, Dr. Carlisle, Al Carlisle, PhD, we've run out of time, went real fast. The book, which I really strongly recommend, is by Al Carlisle, PhD. It's called I'm Not Guilty, a novel based on the actual interviews with Ted Bundy. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Yeah, great pleasure. Thank you, Doc. Thank and, you very much. And fellow, it's so Thank nice. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to see you out from behind bars. Both, <laughs> both the prison, Always a pleasure. Both the prison kind and the other kind. <laughs> how many? How long have you been sober now? Twelve years next month. Twelve years All next right. month. All right. Congratulations, Mazel Tov. Take you out for a drink on your birthday. <laughs> Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence coming up next on Lovely Outlaw Radio. Yeah.